Guys, if everyone could grab a seat and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we're going through a series on the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians. Uh, it was written by Paul 2,000 years ago to a church in modern-day Turkey, uh, but it's relevant to us now because it's God's Word inspired by the Spirit. Uh, and it's quite a timely but also kind of hard word this morning. So prepare your hearts for that. A lot of exhortation in it. But before we go there, I just wanted to show you a few things. We do have our Easter Sunday promo. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's be real. It's probably not going to happen, but we'll pray and plan like it is because we want to still outreach and spread the gospel over Easter season. But nonetheless, we've got these beautiful cards that Leanne made, which are great. So we were going to go do walk-up promotion and invite people to church, but stay tuned. It may or may not happen. We've also made these generic invite cards, which are just... um, It's got like, come visit us on a Sunday. And so they're ones you can take and hand out to people. And when we do monthly walk-up, we'll be going out and giving these out and just letting people know we exist. Because, you know, the longer we exist as a church, we'll just become a little tight in a family, but we won't actually reach the people that we planted the church, excuse me, for. And then we also made like business card size as well. So you can, I'm going to put some in my wallet because I always find I'm like in a situation and they're like, oh, you planted a church. I'm like, yeah, here it is. So you can grab some of those. They're all on the back table there, uh, and you can spread them around and take as many as you want. Um, Yeah, so there you go. There's some things, but we'll keep you up to date with everything um, as we go forward, and we'll we'll follow the government guidelines as a church, as I said in the email, uh, and we'll try and be wise. A lot of the churches, like... um, in the U.S., like Summer Grace Church of Louisville and Orange County, they shut down to like Easter. Um, so we're grateful to be here this morning. And perhaps, you know, this might be our last one here at Tara. You don't know. So let's preach and listen. You know, the Lord may be storing us up for a couple of weeks worth of content here. And it is quite a big passage. So we'll get into it. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 3 to 14. This is God's word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with, or partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says... Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Would you pray with me? Our God and Heavenly Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
we are obviously in the middle of an emergency, a global health crisis, and a pandemic, uh, the World Health Organization called it this week. Uh, and you can see the various reactions that people are having in response to the crisis. But you could imagine, I wonder what you would do if someone walked in just to the middle of our church service right now, looked up, and then just sneezed all over everyone. What would your reaction be? I could imagine there would be panic, not just like disgust, but like genuine panic and fear. And they're like, oh, yeah, I just got um, diagnosed yesterday with coronavirus. It sucks. I've got all these flu symptoms. Our reaction to that, I'm sure, people would be bolting. People would be hand sanitizing, spraying. You know, they might even tackle the guy to the ground. There'd be such a, you know, frustration and anger and a hatred of that disease that there would be an adverse reaction. Um, and you can see it in our society now that people are obviously panic buying, and maybe it's not even panic buying, maybe it's just wise buying at the moment. Uh, people are avoiding, self-isolating, protecting. There's a kind of fight or flight symptom, all in reaction to the coronavirus. And perhaps it's really a good and wise and right reaction, given the nature of its spreadability and the destruction and havoc it can cause. Uh, we see in nations where they've been covering it up, like Iran, they're, they're building mass graves secretly. Uh, there's people dying all over the world as a result. And so our reaction to this virus ought to be severe and emergency. And there should be a sense of wisdom and, you know, get away, kind of like let's protect each other for the sake of everyone's good. You mentioned corona, uh, you mentioned the virus, and people start panic buying and fleeing. But then when it comes to something far more destructive and deadly in our lives, sin, we often have no such reaction. We become very tolerant of it. We can, you know, you say, oh, that's a really you know, sinful or dark TV show. We're like, oh, I'll still watch it anyway. Or, you know, we're in circumstances where we know we ought not to be. And instead of having this instinctive reaction to, ah, oh, this is like disease, this is death, this is darkness, I'm going to flee, we actually partner up and cozy up to it. The Apostle Paul in this passage is trying to give us a health emergency warning. He's giving us a, a protocol of how do we live as Christians in a dark and destructive, sinful world. And he's going to grab us by the shoulders and shake us out of our kind of like, oh, it's going to be okay, kind of she'll be right attitude towards sin. And he's going to warn us of the dangerous and destructive effects that sin can have. And he's going to warn that we ought to treat sin and darkness in the same way that we would treat this virus, with a flee, isolate, get rid of, no part of me kind of mentality. Uh, and so Paul is going to change the metaphor. He's been talking about walking as creatures, new creatures in Christ. He's changing the metaphor now to light and darkness. And he's going to show that as Christians, we are light and therefore should have nothing to do with the darkness. Just like those who want to remain healthy ought to have nothing to do with the coronavirus, we as Christians, if we want to remain pure light, we ought to have nothing to do with the darkness and sins that plague us in this world. Paul is going to give us three points in this passage and split it up. It's quite a long and complex passage, so we'll try and move through it pretty cohesively. Point number one, depart from darkness. Point number two, walk in the light. And point number three, shine as a light. 
And one main point, as children of light, we are to love the light and hate the dark. Let's jump into point number one this morning, depart from darkness. You see, Paul is speaking to people that have just become Christians in the past you know, decade or so. They were living in total sinful Gentile practices. Some of them were Jewish, but a lot of them were from Gentile backgrounds. They didn't know right from wrong, cleanliness from uncleanliness, holiness from unholiness. They lived in a pagan culture which did as their bodies wanted them to do. Um, and in fact, a lot of their worship would have involved all kinds of sexual um, acts. I mean, they were in Ephesus, where the Greek god was Artemis of the Ephesians, and one of the ways you worshipped Artemis was in you know, a, a cult prostitution way with orgies and things like that. So likely this, this Christian church is dealing with a very promiscuous culture, not unlike ours. Yet they're being called out as new creatures to live a new life. And so they need this instruction, they need this reminder, they need this biblical revelation to help them see what is right from what is wrong, what is clean from what is unclean, what is infected from what is uninfected, so to speak, what is light from what is dark. And so then Paul in this first section, verses 3 to 7, outlines a whole number of different ways in which the Ephesian Christians and us are meant to depart and flee from this darkness. And you'll see this kind of dynamic where he's talking about, don't do this, it, it ought to have no place amongst us. Just like, you know, unfortunately, if someone were to have coronavirus in our congregation, they, have, they can't be in the same place because it, it just doesn't work. It's going to infect everyone. That's what sin is like in our lives. You can't kind of just buddy up to it and be so, sort of close to it. It's got to have no place at all. So let's read verse 3 and see the first lot of different commands that we're meant to avoid. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This first command is that these three practices ought not even to be named among us. That means... There should be no way that this is a trademark of who we are as Christians or who we are as a church. There should be no way in which anyone would look upon any single one of us and say, these three sins characterize who we are and what we do. Should not even be named among us. Not even a hint, the NIV says. We should be so far removed from these practices that they, like, there's no connotation, there's no word association at all. So what are these three practices? Well, let's look at them in turn. Um, putting together sexual immorality and all impurity, that basically Paul is saying that any kind of sexual activity outside a committed marriage relationship, any kind, any kind of sexual activity outside a committed marriage relationship is defined in the Bible as sexual immorality and all impurity. That's a high standard and a high bar. It's a sort of junk drawer term. It's like anything you can think of which doesn't fit into the biblical picture of marriage and sexuality is sexual immorality. And, you know, we want to kind of redefine things and, and lessen the light. We want to dim the light, so to speak, in, you know, in what we kind of define as pure and impure and acceptable and unacceptable. But here, not even a hint at all. And then thirdly, this term covetousness means the insatiable desire to acquire more and more whatever the object, and likely here the object is sexual. 
So Paul's really going after this particular sin, which has plagued humanity forever. You know, we think we live in a sexually promiscuous age. We've always lived in sexually promiscuous ages. You just, it's always there because the heart of man and woman is sexually promiscuous. We love the darkness, not the light. And so Paul is saying, Christian, brother and sister, this ought to have no place, no avenue in our life, whether it's hardcore pornography or casual flirting, homosexual activity or erotic novels, an adulterous affair or fantasies in your mind, child pornography or the soft porn rampant in advertising, magazines, TV shows and online. However enticing, However natural, however gratifying these pleasures may seem to us, they are lies. They're empty cisterns that will never satisfy and will only lead us darker and darker and into death. There's no life in them at all. Paul's saying they are darkness, and in the darkness, mold and death and decay grow. Hence why Paul says they should not, should not even be named among us. That means in our own private thought life, on our browsing data, on our Netflix stream, on our iTunes accounts, whatever, in any sphere of our life, the people we hang out with, there should be no participation in these sins whatsoever. There's, there's no like, oh, but a little bit is okay. Because the, the standard is set up here, not named among you, not even a hint now, primarily, you know, this is often a verse that we direct towards guys, um, and men certainly overwhelmingly seem to have more of a problem in this area. But increasingly, and as always, it is a problem for women too. There's an increasing rise of women um, viewing, habitually watching pornography. Um, and there's a huge, you know, encouragement even in the culture for women to speak quite sexually or, you know, in ways that Guys maybe used to speak about women, women speak about men, but for some reason it's not looked down upon if a woman says, oh, he's really hot, or I can't wait to see his shirt off, or things like that. And in, you know, if a guy said that, everyone would be like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. But a lady says it, and suddenly it's okay. Um, so this is not just a problem for the guys, it's a problem for all of us, men and women. We all attempted in this way. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, Brothers and sisters, let this not even be a hint in any of our lives, male or female, young or old. And we can't dial it down and be like, oh, it, you know, we give it cute names, you know, like the Fifty Shades of Grey, oh, it's mummy porn, like as if that's, you know, okay. Um, not even a hint whatsoever. And why does Paul say that? Well, he says simply, these actions are not proper among saints. He reminds us again of our identity. We're holy ones. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. <laughs> you know, that's not just reserved for special Catholic people that have done miracles and lived a holy life. All of us are saints. And we ought to view and hold ourselves in that way so that when we come into contact in the world or in the media with these type of sexually perverse sins, whether they be soft or hard or, you know, casual or, you know, addictive, we ought to have this instinctive reaction of like, this is not proper. This is not right. But over time, what happens is we desensitize. We see it so often, so regularly, that we're just blunted to the, you know, the, the horrible, sinful, dark nature of it all. And so for all of us, we need to ask ourselves, am I fitting into this biblical pattern? 
Have I let a hint of sexual immorality become a pattern or an accepted practice in my life? Have I become desensitized to this sin? And is there anything I need to root out and get rid of my life so that I can live as is proper among the saints? Paul continues then. He doesn't let us off there. So if everyone's convicted, okay, here's some more. Read verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Again, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So here are three more terms that he gives. Let there be no filthiness. That refers to like lewd um, actions and um, kind of ways of you know, gestures and things like that. I'm not going to show you what they are, but I'm sure you can imagine lewd actions or gestures, obscene behavior. Secondly, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Both of those terms seem to refer to like a... A joking that is sexual or perverse in nature, a joking which gets ahead in social conversation by being dark and, and dirty and sinister. There is a certain way that you can improve your place in social circles by willing to make those kind of jokes. Uh, at least that's true in my experience in guy culture, that you can, you know, not like ridiculous jokes, but just enough to kind of get all the boys laughing and then you move on. Um, and that term actually goes back into, you know, um, Aristotle. They actually had this as a virtue, kind of lewd, witty humor that kind of would get everyone laughing and think, oh, you're a really clever guy. Well, Paul says for us, he takes this virtue and makes it a vice. No lewd, witty jokes that get cheap laughs. No sex jokes, no racist jokes, no, you know, jokes which objectify women or objectify men. No jokes which, you know, are taking one element of God's good creation and subverting it and making a joke out of it. It doesn't mean that we don't have any jokes, we don't have humor, but we have to be careful with our humor, I think Paul is saying. So easily humor can degrade into sinful and dark actions that he's saying, be careful, church, in the way that you speak with outsiders and the way you speak as a church, that there be no foolish talk, no crude joking, nor filthiness in your language. Now, you may be thinking, oh, come on, like, lighten up. Can't we just have a bit of fun? Have a laugh. But the reality is, is that what we say with our mouths comes from somewhere. And what we find funny is represented in our values. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's a very convicting verse for me. Kent Hughes says this, one thing is sure, filthy speech means a filthy heart. We must never rationalize this truth. When uh, about 10 years ago, actually, when Maddie and I first started dating, she has a very high standard. I had a very low standard of what was considered right and good and true speech. And I distinctly remember being at Central Station um, just after uni one day and making some kind of crude joke and like turning to her for a laugh and she's like no like that's that's not funny and I'll be like oh come on you know I would think I was quoting South Park or something like that she's like no that like that's completely wrong I was like oh man and then she read to me Ephesians 5 3 and 4 and I was like oh my gosh, I'm totally wrong. I've been seeing this completely wrongly. I've been thinking there is a place for this. It's kind of fun. It's, we're just having a laugh. But the Apostle Paul is warning us. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude 
joking. It's not proper. It's out of place. Why is it out of place? Well, the filthy talk comes from a filthy heart. We find it funny because there's something wrong with us, not something right with us. And so we can't have both. We can't say, I'm a child of light, I'm a saint, I'm a believer in Christ, I love purity, holiness, and righteousness, but I also like a bit of sexual immorality and a bit of crude joking too. It doesn't work. The two can't mix. It'd be like someone that's a Manchester United fan, you know, absolute devotee to Manchester United, which is an English Premier League soccer team. They, you go into the house, they've got Manchester United everywhere, and then they have another room, which is Manchester City, their rival club. And they also have a room to Manchester City. And you're like, wait, I thought you were a Manchester United fan. They're like, yeah, but I also like Manchester City too. I kind of go for them sometimes when I don't feel like going for Manchester United. Like, well, you can't do that. If you're a Manchester United fan, you can't go for Manchester City. That's what Paul's saying here for us. If you are a follower of Christ, you cannot participate. You can't have a poster on your wall that is the opposite of who Christ is. Can't have a place in your life. So what's sort of the solution to our coarse joking and our filthy speech? And even our sexual immorality, because these two verses are linked. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's interesting. Paul doesn't say, let there be pure speech or let there be holy speech. But he says, let there be thanksgiving. Why? Why is that? If you remember back to last week, um, the message was on imitating God, becoming like God as children of God, and walking in love as Christ loved us. Love is self-sacrificing and other person-centered. And then we jump into this passage, verse 3 and 4. What is it? Sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, filthy speech, crude talk. What are all those things? Where are they coming from? Selfish, degraded hearts. Hearts that are lustful and grabby. Wanting what we ought not to have. That's why we're tempted into sexual sin, because we want what we ought not to have. It's enticing and we grab it. So what's the solution? Instead of focusing on what we don't have, focus on what we do have. So instead of sexual immorality going, I wish I could just peek. I wish I could just say that joke because it'll get everyone laughing. We focus on what we do have in Christ. So instead, let there be thanksgiving. And so out of our mouth flows, oh, Praise the Lord for this and praise the Lord for that. And we have a, a culture of contentment and joy rather than a culture of grabbing and selfish and lustful hearts. And it actually starts to train your mind to see things differently. Rather than seeing what we're missing out on and, and the lures of sexual temptation thing become far less when you see all the glory and the gifts that we do have. Whether you're married or single, there's amazing power and antidote to our sin in the practice of thanksgiving, especially for the gospel. So instead, let there be thanksgiving. Turn your eyes to what you do have rather than what you don't. And this is also an antidote as well to trying to figure out what do we do with our media? Okay, so say we all go into lockdown. Everyone has to spend 14 days at home. We have an opportunity, right? We have decisions. What are we going to do to spend our time? Normally, we'd be commuting or working. Now we're at home. For a lot of us, we're like, awesome. Binge TV or podcasts or movies or an opportunity for that. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. 
But how do we discern what we're meant to watch? I mean, obviously you could read great Christian books or re-listen to all the Ephesians sermon series. You know, that would be great. But say you're not going to do that and you spend some time watching TVs. How do you know what to watch? I mean, sexual immorality, crude joking, lewdness, covetousness, that's, that's TV. <laughs> that's the plot line of a lot of TV shows. How do you discern what you ought to watch and what not? Instead, let there be thanksgiving. The practice of thanksgiving can help you discern, should I watch this show or listen to this podcast or read this book? Can you at the end of the show or the the movie go, thank you, Lord, for that. That was beautiful art. That helped me to enjoy you. I'm so aware of how great and good you are. Thank you, God, for the gift of that TV show. And if you can't, maybe it's an indication you ought not to be watching it. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of shows and things you can't watch. That's for you to decide. You're a Christian. You can figure it out. But at the end, can you give thanks to God for it? Because that's Paul's antidote here to those things which are out of place. How do we know? Can you praise God for it? So we've got these all these commands here, and you know, it's it's heavy and intense. It's sort of really, you know, we don't like being told not what we can't do, and it's really hard to figure out what we ought to do. And we can think, oh, is Paul just being a prude, or is he just doesn't know how to have fun? Or you know, he's not living in the world. He doesn't know how to win people to Christ. We've got to watch these shows so we can be, participate, etc. But the reason why Paul is giving these warnings for the Christian community is because sin is dangerous and destructive. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous That is an idolater, making God of something else other than the one true living God, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let those words sit. The reason why Paul warns against these sins is not because he's a prude and wants to ruin our fun. It's because they are deadly. They will destroy you. They will send people to hell. And anyone who makes a practice of this as a lifestyle will be barred from the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who makes this an unrepentant practice will not be gained entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot worship sexual immorality and you cannot be someone named and defined by that and be someone who follows Christ. They cannot go together. You can't have both posters on the wall. And so Paul makes this dire warning, which we don't like because we live in a very inclusive, tolerant culture. But many times in the New Testament, this is, this is a repeated refrain all the way through into Revelation, that anyone who makes a practice of sin has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, should we all be worried? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on your life. It depends on your heart. The reality is is that in the gospel, we are secure. We do have an inheritance through Jesus Christ. We've been promised that in chapter 1. So if you fall into these sins, no, you don't lose your salvation. You're not suddenly now barred from the kingdom of heaven. But the warning is there nonetheless. That anyone who makes a practice, an unrepentant habit of this lifestyle, you can't be in Christ because the Spirit of God would be convicting you to stop. And would be leading you through Christian community to repent and stop doing it. So brothers and sisters, may this warning sit on us and let the word of God warn us. 
We can't have light and dark together. Can't have both posters going on. And then he goes on and gives another warning in verse 6. Because there's always someone who'll find a way to justify their way out of it. Theologically even. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Even in the church, people will try and give justification for like, oh, well, we've got to watch this show because we've got to reach out to our non-Christian neighbors and help them understand, you know, like we're in the culture and we're cool and we're relevant. Or people will come up with theological justifications for all manner of sin. And Paul's saying, don't have a bar of it. Do not be deceived. You can't go down this line because God's wrath, God's holy and righteous anger will come against people who are lost in these sins. And so not only are we to not participate in them, but we're not to lie to our neighbors and non-Christian friends and permit their sin too. We can't make up things like love is love and that these type of sins are okay with the Lord when clearly in Scripture they're not. True love tells the truth. True love offers hope. True love celebrates what is good and right and true. And so as believers, as those who are saints and children of light, we offer to each other the gospel and the truth of the gospel rather than lies that permit sin to be commonplace and practiced. And so Paul then brings it all together in verse 7. And he says this, Therefore, do not become partners with them, i.e., do not team up with those in the world who are practiced like this, or even those in the church who are practiced like this. It doesn't mean don't like. It doesn't mean start a commune and you know create a new cult where we're all like a holy huddle. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't enter into fellowship in a partner way. Don't sin with people in this way. We can't have that. It's just not an acceptable path for us. Not for the sake of mission, not for the sake of reaching out. There's, there's no partnership allowed. Christ called us to be in the world, but not of the world. And so Paul is saying, so destructive, so dangerous is the darkness that we can't be partnering up and committing the same sins with other people because it will destroy us and destroy them. And instead, we're meant to be a light to them. So what does this kind of look like in practice? Well, here, I thought of one kind of like, it's a, it's a bad scenario, but it's a scenario that happens, right? So you're on a hands or a bucks night. Should you go or not? You know there's going to be all manner of darkness and sexual immorality, crude joking, things like that happening. Should you go or not? Well, that's a decision for you to make. But however, say you do go and you're like, I'm going to love and serve my friend who's getting married. And, but then the stripper comes out and you're like, ah, what should I do? Well, the, the, the clear application of the scripture is you do not be partners with them. You get up and you leave. There's, there's, no, like, there's no way you could be like, well, I'm just, I don't want to make them feel awkward. I don't want to present as like I'm self-righteous. No, no, no. We have no partnership with sin and darkness. And so we're to be in the world, but not of it. And so at times that means we actually have to look silly, look self-righteous, even if that's what they think, and we have to leave. We can't be a part of it. So Paul brings the church together, shakes them a little bit. He's like, guys, guys, you cannot live in this way anymore. Your old past looked like this. This was normal, following your common practice. But now, as saints, this is not proper. Let there not even be a hint. 
depart from the darkness. Flee from the darkness. It's a warning. It's a public health announcement to the Christian church. And as we've gone through Ephesians, there's lots of, like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And it can feel a bit, you know, restrictive and like, come on, like, what can we do? Well, Paul always gives us, and the gospel, and the way the Bible's written, it always gives us like these, like the, the commands not to do something is built on a foundation of grace and identity. So our motivation structure is not like, well, we're pretty good and self-righteous, so I'm not like those, you know, dirty sinners and <laughs> I'm pretty good. Or it's like, oh, I just got to be fearful because God's going to zap me for doing something, so I just stay away from it. Let's look at point number two to find our identity and our motivation for why we'd even want to depart from all this sin. Because you might be thinking, actually, I like this stuff. And yeah, it's tempting. It's enjoyable. Sin is enjoyable. It's always going to be enjoyable. Otherwise, like, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't do it. Like, if sin was, like, not enjoyable, we wouldn't do it, right? So sin is always going to tempt you. So how do you fight off that temptation? Point number two, walk in the light. Read verse 8 with me. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul wants to remind us, God wants to remind us of our true identity. We truly were darkness. We weren't just amidst darkness. We weren't just around darkness. But Ephesians chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, We were darkness. Do you believe that about yourself? You were darkness. You were consumed by Satan's sin and death. That was our actual lived reality. And for anyone who is outside of Christ, that is your lived reality. You were darkness. You are darkness. And that creates a problem because 1 John 1 5 says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So we have a massive problem. If we are darkness in our sin, and God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all, what, what can we possibly do? Well, Paul says, you were darkness, then look at the rest of the verse, but now you are light. Not just a little bit light, but completely, fundamentally light. In the Lord. You see, a remarkable thing has happened to us through Christ's death and resurrection, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. The darkness is completely banished. And we are light. The light switch is turned on in our inner being, and there's only light in there through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not because we have cleaned ourselves up and, you know, pulled ourselves up by the bootstrap and bit by bit, you know, scraped out the darkness here and there. And now, hey, look at us, we're light. No, we are light in the Lord. It's only through Jesus Christ's perfect glory coming into us through his saving work that we are light. And it's a beautiful reality. We can all now identify ourselves not as tainted by darkness, but as light. I am light. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what's more, we are now the light of life because we have Christ in us. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. This is our new identity. This is our new reality that we need to see ourselves as. And this identity of grace that was given to us, this gift that was given to us, helps us to live out verses 3 through 7. It changes the way we live and the way we think. Because then he goes on to apply it and he says, okay, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We had to walk into the dark world as children of light. So we're not to escape the dark world and live in a commune. We're to go into the world, but we go in with this identity of grace. I am light. And therefore, we don't participate in the darkness. We don't join in in the sin. We remain removed from the sin, but we remain a presence within it. That's the tension of the Christian life, a faithful presence within, but not of the world. So how does this look practically? Well, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, The fruit of light i.e. the result of becoming light, is living in a way that is good, right, and true. That's kind of the standard, a new triad, rather than the, the three, the sinful triads of sexual morality, filthiness, obscene talk, etc. Goodness, rightness, and truth. They're out. That's how we're meant to live in the world. That's what we're meant to be look like. That's meant to be the trademark of you and our lives in our workplace in our family, in our home, on the bus, people should be like, that's a good person. That's a right person. That's a truthful person. And the second thing he says, what it looks like to walk as a child of light, verse 10. To live in and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because it is confusing in our world. How do we figure out how to live as light in a dark world And I like how it kind of says, like, try, (laughs) like, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So as you leave church and go into the dark world and live your life in amongst it, always be thinking, okay, I've got to live what is good, right, and true. And I've got to think, will this please the Lord? Will this please the Lord? Will this please the Lord? And it can become tiring. Let's Let's be real. It's hard to continually live in a dark world, shining as a light, trying to discern what pleases the Lord, but that's the battle we face. We're pilgrims on a journey toward the kingdom of light. And we have no, no, like there's no category in our life which is like a little bit of darkness is allowed. That's not a path we can walk at all. And so we have to continually go back to the Lord, the, the Lord of light for grace, for power, for the ability to actually walk as children of the light. So practically, this looks like the same pattern, putting off, renewing, putting on. So we go out into the world and we are putting off sexual immorality and greed and impurity and foolish and crude joking. And then we're renewing our mind thinking, I am light. I am light in the Lord. I am a saint. There ought to be not even a hint, not even a hint 
Nothing can be named amongst me. It's out of place. All those sins, they're out of place. You're renewing your mind constantly. Ah, and you have to do this every day. You can't like take a day off. This is just every day as you're out in the world, even at home, every place. You've got to be thinking when you're on your phone, I am light all the time. It's tiring. And then you've got to put on, what does it look like to walk as a child? Okay, what would it look like to be, do something that is good and righteous and true? What does it look like to please the Lord in this circumstance? That's the path we're being called to. That's the opportunity we have. And it can seem like restrictive and like tiring, but it's actually God saying, here is health, here is life, here is goodness. The darkness will destroy you. I'm giving you health. Walk in this way. And the more steps we take, the easier it becomes. The more natural it becomes to walk as a child of light rather than as a child of darkness. So we need to adopt this mentality and this identity. It needs to become our motivation. It needs to become what fuels us so that we can live in this dark world. Because as children of light, we are to love the light and hate the darkness. Not just tolerate it, but we're to hate it. So Paul gives us one final application of what it means to walk in the light in verses 11 through 14. So there's a lot in this passage, I know, but... I think it it all fits together as one unit, so I wanted to keep it together. One final passage, point three, shine as a light. Read verses 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. It's possible here that Paul is telling us to go out into the world and expose the sin of the world. It's possible. You could read it like that, and commentators differ. But I think actually in the context of he's speaking to the church, and he's actually saying all these sins ought not to happen within our believing community, that he's actually directing us as Christians to one another to be shining lights to each other and to expose the sin of anyone in our community who's walking in the darkness. That's our holy duty of love and care and concern for one another, is to not allow anyone to walk in a pattern and path of darkness in our church community. I think that's primarily what Paul is calling us to do in this passage. Now, there may be roles in our workplaces, in our life, and politically, and social justice, to be a light, to expose the sins of darkness in the world. And many Christians have done a great job of that. But I think here in this passage, he's looking around the Ephesian church, he's looking to us and saying, if you know any brother or sister who is caught in darkness, expose it. Shine light onto the situation. Make it visible so as to warn them of the wrath and the judgment to come, so as to warn them that it ought to have no place among you. Oftentimes, we can get a bit scared to rebuke and confront our brothers and sisters. We can be a bit afraid of like offending people or driving people away. But in love, speaking the truth in love, we have a holy duty to one another to expose the light where we see darkness. Not out of self-righteousness, but out of self-sacrificial love for them. So is there anyone that you know of in our small little congregation, and it's awkward because we can see everyone's faces and everything, that you know is actually walking in paths of darkness? 
And if so, shine the light to them. Expose it to them. Bring in love and observation or rebuke so that they may be saved out of darkness and walk as a child of light again. Or perhaps for you, um, you may be walking in darkness in a particular pattern or area of your life. And you need to expose yourself in that sense. You need to actually admit, I'm walking in the darkness. Because verse 12 says, it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Unbelievers often just sin blatantly. They're not ashamed of what they're doing. But believers, we become ashamed. And so we go more and more into the dark, more and more quiet, and more and more secret. And so... If there's anyone here in the congregation that is in that darkness and that secrecy, may I encourage you, first and foremost, bring it to God. Repent to him for your pattern of darkness and sin. Repent to those you've sinned against, perhaps a spouse, a friend. And then bring it into light and ask your brothers and sisters to shine into the circumstance and hold you accountable so that those warnings in verse 5 and 6 don't actually apply to you that you're living in the good of the gospel, not making a pattern of your sin. So as we put all this together, this really long and kind of painful passage in that sense, let me end with the hope that this passage ends with. For any one of us who is tempted or in vice, in in the the grip of a sin or walking in darkness or just constantly feeling like they're desensitized to sin and they're constantly, you know, making these jokes or exposed to sexual immorality and they're just, ah, this this is hurting me and I don't like it. Paul ends by with this great hope, this great promise that anyone that returns to Christ or anyone here who's not yet a believer, this can be true for you today. He says, awake, O sleeper, And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our great hope is that we don't have to stay in the darkness. If you come forward and admit it, there may be shame and maybe uncomfortability and all those type of things. But Christ will shine on you, and the light of Christ will be in you. And you will experience life and health and restoration through the power of the gospel and the joy that is in Jesus. And you'll actually enjoy your life more rather than the the degrading and debilitating and destructive effect of sin. So brothers and sisters, as children of light, we had to love the light and hate the darkness. We had to depart from the darkness. No place amongst us. No no tolerance for it. As guys, as girls, no like, oh, it'll be all right, or maybe next time, or no tolerance. Live in the light because you are light in Christ Jesus. And then shine your light in our community. Love one another enough to expose sin in love and in humility. And in so doing, we will shine and be a light to the world and we will enjoy the goodness and grace of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that we don't have to be defined by our sin or our darkness or our past, but we can have light. We can be light, that we are light through your Son. Lord, I ask that you would give us strength to walk as light in the world, to depart from the darkness, to have no tolerance for it, 
but instead to live a life of thanksgiving where we are holy and righteous and true. And may it never be to our own pride or boasting, but all to your glory. Lord, would you help us to love one another enough to expose sin? Would you help us to love one another enough to be concerned for each other's lives? And would you help us in humility to expose ourselves if that is what is necessary? That you may shine on us and allow us to awake from sleep and rise from death and to walk in the newness of life. Lord God, we're totally dependent on your mercy and grace. Help us to walk out in the dark world as lights. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.